response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce, and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. But how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Leading the way to a world beyond waste, a podcast series produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Chartered Institution of Wastes Management. And here's our host, Mark Shaler. Hello, and welcome to Leading the Way to a World Beyond Waste the CIWM and Content with Purpose podcast series, where we explore the resources and waste sector's role in the transition to low carbon, resource efficient, circular, maybe fairer, and hopefully better economy. The waste sector, the resources sector, we we forget how powerful they are in terms of keeping materials moving and growing a better future. They're absolutely crucial. My name is Mark Shaler, and for over 30 years, I've been helping companies and organizations to understand what sustainability means to them, helping them develop strategies that truly embrace the transformative opportunities that come from our transition to net zero, but also from our transition to a regenerative economy. With this podcast series and through the people that we're going to meet, I want to know what changes are coming to the waste management sector and the resources sector as a result of our transition to a low carbon fairer, a better economy, and what that means for those within the sector. Today, in order to help answer these questions, I'm joined by Sam Horn, Chair of Nordo. Sam, before you start, what is Nordo? Nordo is the National Association of Waste Disposal Officers. So essentially, it's a local authority network that represents any local authority that has a waste disposal function in their services. So waste disposal, for those with a two-tier authority, that tends to be the county authority uh, and plus the unitaries on top, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So county councils, unitary authorities, but also metropolitan boroughs So and the London Joint Waste Authorities. So have quite a range of, uh, of different people from or organisations from across the sector. And just give us a snapshot of the overall mood of the industry. In terms of decarbonisation, is the industry excited by the opportunity that decarbonisation presents? Is it moving fast enough or does it see it as almost an irrelevancy? No, I think definitely local authorities and indeed the wider sector are really excited about the prospect that um, decarbonisation brings. I think it's fair to say that to a degree the waste sector has kind of been in a bit of a lull over the last few years. Um, There's been a bit of a policy vacuum and we've seen the results of that has been stagnating recycling, you know, and slow progress in terms of performance. I think the whole decarbonisation agenda and in fact, the climate change strategies that we've, we've put together is really driving us forward. Pretty much all local authorities now have a climate emergency declared and as a result of that have a strategy in place to deal with that. And that's leading to development of really interesting projects, whether that's about decarbonising the, the, the way we move waste around or whether it's about decarbonising the infrastructure we're actually using to process the waste. On top of that, we're working with our local resident, with our residents to try and manage, you know, to, to encourage them to do their bit to decarbonise and really making those links between the climate crisis that they're seeing happening on their TV screens in their news reports and linking that to the things they can practically do at home to actually make a difference. Because I think that's the, one of the biggest challenges we find is, is making that link for, the, for, for residents who are the ones that 
we need to be part of this process. They're absolutely critical. I think it is moving reasonably fast. Things are starting to happen, but there are some, we can't, we can't sort of hide from the challenges. There's some significant cost challenges that we're all facing in doing, doing that. But I think actually it's about unlocking those challenges and finding ways that we can work around it so that we actually deliver the outcomes that, that we need from a climate perspective. I, I couldn't agree more. Every constriction, every constraint presents its own opportunities. And this kind of external change presents a hugely rich opportunity to rethink the way that we use resources. And I'm really interested by what you just talked about in terms of, I'll call it supply side, but the consumer demand for goods, you know, how we how we become happier by consuming more is, is increasingly seen as a very empty uh, philosophy. And I'm also acutely aware of the of the acquisitions of a sort of like a, a paternal state or a nanny state telling us what to think and what to do. That's a really fine balance in terms of um, changing consumer, customer, and in your, I guess in your case, citizen behavior. Do you think you're going to go there in more detail, or is it something you're just going to stay out of? I don't think I don't think we can stay out of it. To be honest, I think we've got to bring the public along with us. You know, we hear this debate happening a lot. Um, I hear it both in my you know my my, my work life. So we're having these conversations with residents uh, and thinking about strategies for how we engage our residents more. But it's also happening in your personal life. You know, there are people are debating whether it is worth it. What you know, my role in this is is really important. So I, I think we have to be quite challenging. I think we've got to consider that most of the public are, you know, understand, get the have a grip on these concepts and are actually keen to find out what they can do. And I think it's about building that momentum. So having those honest conversations with them, you know, putting the facts on the table for them, trying to bust through some of those myths, make giving a clear and consistent message. And that way, we'll get them on board and hopefully they'll be engaged and they'll push forward on the agenda with us. And that's how we'll get the results happening with everyone working together on it. I hope so. I used to have a friend who would, anything that she put in the bin, she would smash with a hammer in case anybody wanted to do something with it and reuse it, sell it. And and I just remember thinking, why? And and I think that mentality has definitely changed Um it is a it is a really interesting challenge though how we decouple joy and happiness from consumption leading the way to a world beyond waste this episode is sponsored by nuclear waste services sherborne recycling and machine x nuclear waste services brings together the uk's leading nuclear waste management capabilities safely and securely managing the uk's radioactive waste for generations to come Sherborne Recycling operates an innovative, state-of-the-art materials recycling facility in Coventry on behalf of eight local authorities. MachineX engineers, manufactures and installs material recovery facilities globally. Their turnkey systems feature their own line of custom-built sorting technologies. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, worldbeyondwaste.ciwm.co.uk. Leading the way to a world beyond waste. Also joining us today is Andy Rees. Andy is um, Head of Waste Strategy for the Welsh Government. Um, and Andy is a bit of a trailblazer. He'll be a bit embarrassed by me saying this, but, but the, the policy direction that the Welsh Government are taking is, is, is like legendary and groundbreaking. And so thank you for everything that you do in support of that, Andy. I know that's not what you do on your own, but thank you for everything you do in support of it. And in, in recent years, we've seen energy from waste carbon capture use and storage, 
develop a growing role in our waste management system. How do you see their role evolving in the future as we kind of try harder, press down, double down on achieving net zero? Well, for the waste that can't be reduced or recycled, uh, energy from waste definitely has a useful role. But of course, we must remember it is only just above landfill in the waste hierarchy um, and actually doesn't, doesn't really form part of a circular economy because it destroys valuable materials. However, as I said, it is a very useful transition technology uh, as we move away from landfill and hopefully to more waste prevention and recycling in the future. But that will take quite a while, I think, before everything could be made recyclable and we reduce more waste. So, you know, we need to, as you, as you mentioned earlier, we need to design out um, the wrong things, basically, uh, and try and persuade people to buy the right things. Uh, and that will have a, a challenge. But um, also, of course, we want to move towards more renewable energy in the future and certainly get the plastic uh, items out of that residual waste stream that is going to energy from waste. On um, carbon capture and storage, um, it, it, it has its sort of practical and financial challenges, but I'm sure there's lots of clever people out there um, who will do their best uh, you know, to overcome that and make sure it works properly, but it will have a significant cost. But on the positive side, hopefully that will drive more waste prevention and recycling, uh, which is actually a good thing. It's interesting. I love this discussion because I've been involved in writing waste strategy for, I called the first one, 2020 Vision, and I wrote it in 2002. So it's a long, long time I've been working out of Staffordshire County Council, um, a long, long time in this. And the conversations around public-private partnership and the development of energy from waste facilities, they were 25-year contracts. And so these things, once built, are hungry and, and they need feeding. And so we've got this we've got this historic problem, which could still be going on for another 15, 10 to 15 years, where those energy from waste facilities need throughput. Otherwise, there's, a, there's an impact on the public purse. Do you think that we have matured in our approach to funding and strategizing um, our waste disposal options? Or do you think we're still likely to make the same mistakes? I think like to think we, we've learned a lot from, from the previous round. I mean, there was a, a real trend towards long-term infrastructure-heavy projects and contracts over the last sort of 20 or 30 years. And a lot of those are starting to come to an end. So we're starting to see a lot of those PFIs um, and PPP contracts, are, you know, those private partner contracts coming to an end around the 2030 mark or early 2030s. I definitely think we've seen the end of those contracts. I cannot see us letting that kind of thing, those kind of really big, long, heavy, residually waste-based infrastructure projects going on. I think what we'd like to see more of, and certainly the discussions that we're having uh, at a local authority level, is conversations about regional, regional capacity, regional infrastructure for more bespoke and specialised infrastructure. Um, a lot of people getting really interested in in what technology is out there that can help drive us away from that that sort of really bland, you know, residual waste capacity kind of driven infrastructure side. So I, I think that I think there's going to be a definite shift over the next few years as we see those those big long legacy contracts come to an end and local authorities start to approach the market um, and the different suppliers to to see what's out there. They're they're excited by the opportunity and there's definitely the technologies are are coming out are emerging. They're being proven at both a, a sort of local and a, and a much more regional level. Brilliant. Thank you. And Andy, what, what does this mean? What are you seeing um, in terms of uh, Wales? Just sort of go, going back about uh, 20 years or, or perhaps uh, 20 years plus, 
um, when we were trying to forecast um, the need for energy from waste. Um, I remember we were all thinking that waste arisings would grow at around two, two or three percent per year, uh, which of course meant we would have to double capacity within about twenty years. Um, we got that prediction wrong um, because uh, certainly in Wales, waste arisings have either stabilised or decreased. So trying to marry up, um, you know, with the, the actual delivery of capacity with forecasted needs is a real challenge. Um, we've published a strategic assessment in 2021 on the need uh, for new waste facilities in Wales, taking into account various scenarios in terms of waste prevention and recycling, um, and forecast that for at least two of our sort of three main regions that, that you know, we already have enough energy from waste capacity. Building on what, what Sam has said, um, you know, I think uh, some serious questions need asking about whether it's the large scale, very expensive facilities that are needed because actually financing them costs a lot of money. Whereas smaller scale facilities, maybe that funding for them can come off balance sheet or from available resources and don't have to be financed through the finance sector. That I'm not an economist, but that may or may not be a cheaper way to actually finance smaller scale facilities. And of course, if you find out in the future that you don't need that capacity, it's much easier to close smaller facilities than it is to clo close a larger one. So I, I think some perhaps some radical rethinking is needed on the approach to in the future, taking into account all those lessons that we've all learned over the years. And I guess that allows a greater opportunity to connect into district heating systems. If, we, if we're going smaller scale, we can then distribute the, um, the benefits of this in terms of heating power locally. Yes, exactly. A distributed energy system you know, is something a lot of people are very interested in. It, 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 of course, it does need adequate grid connections, but that's going to be the way forward for, for most renewable energy probably in the future. Is, is that sort of distribution you know, to more localised production of energy. I think Wales is slightly ahead of the curve in having a more regional approach here. Um, but, but Sam, are we going to see the rise of sub-regional um, government? Are we going to see, the, see the, the kind of escalation or the lifting of waste disposal to a kind of sub-regional level? Or is it going to stay at county council, metropolitan and, and, and unitary authority level? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. I think we might see a bit of a mixture of both, if I'm honest. I think there. I don't think anyone's really proved one way or another that you know, sort of the scale is necessary. Building on Andy's point around the, you know, the the, the smaller scale facilities, I think one of the benefits of going down that road is it also um, links the the waste being produced to the community that's producing it because you keep the facility close to the thing, you reduce the mileage. There is that ownership element, which I think is really important, something that's slightly lost at the minute because your waste goes into a bin in, you know, sort of my going to the bin in mid Hampshire and then trucked, you know, sort of miles away up, up you know, up a road to the north north part of the county where it's processed. And, and that, that those distances are far greater in other parts of the, the country. I think that ownership is really important and actually will we'll bring those facilities into the community and make them part of the process. You can do, you can build all your education off that. You can do all your, your that kind of work. So you, you're much more telling that story about it's produced here. This is what you're using it. And then this is what happens to it. And this is what the benefit is of it being in your community. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we may see some changes in that regard. I think there are a number of deals being looked at at the moment um, around expanding. That's the size of the region. So sub-regional levels. But I think there's a lot of work to do, mainly to align the various bits and pieces of the contracts um, and to be able to bring that scale to, together because, you know, there are some real challenges in that. 
Yeah, um, actually, I'll give you an example of our um, anaerobic digestion of food waste. Um, 99% of our households have a separate weekly food waste collection service and have done for around 10 years. And as part, as part of supporting that, uh, the Welsh Government supported groups of local authorities to work together. So as far as I remember, there were seven hubs uh, of around 14 or 15 local authorities um, that clubbed together. And in the end, five facilities were built. So um, although I talked about small scale facilities earlier, you know, there are, there's still the economy of scale issue and you've got to try and get the right balance. But those local authorities, you know, working together procured a reasonably local solution, um, you know, in terms of having five plants uh, scattered throughout Wales. And that, that worked really well, you know, it helped them with the procurement process. Not, not, not all of our local authorities have that sort of experience in terms of procuring waste contracts. And that was, you know, allied to rolling out uh, or funding the separate collection of food waste from, from households. And I know um, England is uh, facing that challenge in the future uh, in terms of expanding the collection of uh, food waste from all homes eventually, I, I assume. Yeah, just been kicked back a little bit, hasn't it? Do you think there's opportunity around business innovation and, and creating enterprise as a result of a more local or regional approach to waste? And how do, and this is a question for both of you, how do local government get involved in stimulating that or is it not their job? We've got some micro businesses that I'm aware of, um, although they are expanding. For example, um, a micro business called uh, Smile Plastics turns uh, plastic granules and plastic flakes into really high quality um, architectural panels and, and use for other purposes, making um, you know real huge extra value out of uh, plastic waste. And they've been uh, working on projects, for example, um, with marine plastic. So uh, working with surface against sewage and others, collecting uh, plastic, for, uh, sadly, from our local beaches and then turning it actually into fantastic uh, new, new products. Of course, that, that is probably better done through a source separated um, clean plastic stream, but nevertheless, it's a really good example of a, a sort of bespoke, almost artisan product. Similarly, there's a, another micro business that um, uh, uses recycled glass bottles and again makes a, an architectural glass panel, meeting all of the specifications required in the construction industry. And those sort of businesses don't need huge quantities of recyclate, but they can really add huge extra value into those materials. So truly upcycling uh, initiatives. And, you know, there's opportunities through the uh, Shared Prosperity Fund and other, other sources of funding to support entrepreneurs and micro businesses like that to do something really innovative uh, with recyclate. And of course, reuse and repair, we must also give a plug to as well, all sorts of opportunities there as well in the future. Wonderful, they're great examples. Sam. I think local authorities do have a, a, a critical role to play, actually, Mark. I think, you know, we have um, some clear procurement policies that are about trying to maximise the opportunities for SMEs in our area. We want to see that business, that growth happening in our areas. That's really important. Helps develop jobs, you know, provides skills and training to, to, to people in, in various different guises. We can lead in that prospect. As I say, with a lot of these big legacy contracts coming to an end, there are some real opportunities to kind of relook in a really kind of radical way, as Andy said, about the way in which we, we look to procure services in the future. Uh, and I think that opens up the door for consideration of new technologies. Uh, I know a number of authorities have, have, have worked with 
um, small micro businesses um, as well as sort of smaller businesses around sort of providing feedstock, you know, to do demonstrator plants, that kind of thing. I know we've been involved in those in Hampshire in the past and other authorities across across the UK have. And that's a really important way of learning about these technologies, building that confidence in them. Um, and once we've got confidence in them, then local authorities are really well placed to help bring them forward through their procurement policies, give them the opportunity um, and then help build that growth in the area. And that then offers a, an exemplar plant for other parts of the country to be able to look at and, and develop. So I think we've got that, you know, that leadership role is really important from local authorities, um, even if it's not pumping in, you know, the big bucks to, to get them into the into the kind of full scale operation. We're working with them to develop those demonstrator plants and support them in their growth. And you just added a really important point, Sam. You might not be able to accelerate their growth in terms of investment, but in terms of creating a market for the things they're making, in terms of local authority procurement, that's really interesting because there's a huge market there, not just locally, but regionally and nationally, Andy. That's a huge opportunity. How do you embrace procurement within your individual functions? How do you work with the procurement team to stimulate um, circular economy product coming in? Obviously, as, as, as a government, um, we have various policy responsibilities, and that also includes public procurement. So we, we work very closely with our procurement team. Um, they help um, facilitate the drawing up of um, framework contracts across Wales for the entire public sector. So, for example, there is a, a framework contract for procuring office furniture and fit-out, and we work closely with them with support from Rap Cymru. And that contract predicates, uh, first of all, towards using reused and remanufactured office furniture. And there's a number of fantastic examples across the public sector now. And I'm actually sat on a remanufactured office chair that I actually paid for myself, but instead of costing £500, it costs £200. So not only is it fantastic for the environment and reducing carbon emissions, but it's actually cheaper for the public sector in many cases to procure these sorts of things. So that there's there's just a, an example. And actually, that chair is manufactured by a company in Wales uh, who actually deliberately designed it so it can be remanufactured, so it can be taken apart. So it's part of their business model to sell chairs that can be remanufactured and reused, which is uh, quite enlightening of them, really. And, and in the true nature of circularity, Andy, I have the same chair down the studio and I trained them 12 years ago in how to develop circular economy products funded by, it was EnviroWise then, but it was funded by, by, by national government. Yeah, so I know the company you're talking about and they are a great example of how you embed sustainability into the innovation process rather than leave it in the environmental team. And I think that is a really powerful story you all sat on. Moving on a little and looking forward, what, in your opinion, are the hot topics or the pertinent issues that the resources sector is going to face? And can you illustrate your answers with some specific examples? I'll go with Sam first. Yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, obviously the current government policy changes, collection and packaging reforms are kind of really hot on the agenda at the minute. Extended producer responsibility is a really uh, kind of important plank of that, th those reforms, uh, but completely alongside the what is now simpler recycling, which is well, as formerly known consistency and the deposit return scheme. So those three working hand in hand are really important. And we're really trying to get our heads around how those three different policy measures will interact 
the outcomes we're looking to achieve from them and then making sure that we're setting things up so that they actually deliver the outcomes in terms of maximizing that quality resource coming through from the front end because we've got to interact with the residents at the curbside and make sure what's being collected and then picked up and then transported and processed to, to the processes is high quality, uh, high volume and high quality recycler, but also try and get those messages across and, and work within the sort of existing kind of constraints that we have around our, our collection system. So I think the the whole element of, of managing that is a really key. And as I we kind of touched on earlier, I think the link between that and the produ- the actual producer, i.e. the residents, is a really important kind of part of that. One of the other hot topics that's kind of picking up a lot of our kind of bandwidth at the moment is the ever-increasing challenge of more complex waste streams. So um, the example of uh, waste upholstered domestic seating and POPs or persistent organic pollutants found within waste upholstered domestic seating is a really kind of thorny issue we're trying to get our hands around. And that's having multiple impacts. So that's having an impact on our ability to reuse um, items. So uh, furniture that's coming through the system that, that could otherwise be reused, having to go off and end up being disposed of in a particular way. But also it's raising the challenge of really understanding what our waste is made up of. And that's not an area that anyone really has been has grappled up until date. Yes, we, we focus on is it card, is it paper, is it a can or is it a bulky item? You know, it doesn't get much further than that. Now we're having to think about what chemicals are actually used in the products within each element of the products that we're we're using. So I think we're going to have to do a real rethink on how we're handling that. You know, is it product passports? Is it chemical passports uh, attracted to each item so that we can manage through those systems? There's a whole new skill set that we've got to learn. We've got to get up to speed with. And then we've got to bring in board the systems to be able to do it. Because what we can't allow to happen is that kind of stuff to drive more stuff into the residual waste stream and end up with an ever-increasing pile of uh, of items to burn. Not least because it'll have a significant financial impact on us because of things like the emissions trading scheme, but also because you know it'll just drive that sort of same thinking of sort of 30, 40 years ago of let's build a really big incinerator to, to manage that. So we've got to think completely differently about about the way we do that. We've got an opportunity to do that, but we've got to be forward looking. We can't be looking back at you know what's happened before. We've got to deal with this coming down the line. It's going to be a bit of a convey about the POPs issue as we're finding, and we've really got our get hands on it. So there are a couple of the, the key issues that are kind of exercising our, our minds at the minute. We talk about POPs. Um, I mean, obviously, this data exists. So the chemicals agency in Finland, in Helsinki, under the REACH regulations, they, they know what every... European manufacturer or European importer of products of chairs of or whatever has put in their in their products, and I'm guessing the links between the data requirement and the data holder are quite weak. How, how, I mean, I'll go to Andy for this, but how do we um how do we increase that opportunity to 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 lean on the data that already exists, Andy? Yeah, I mean the the problem is some of it is commercially uh, confidential. So it is a challenge, but I, I, I gather something I was reading the other day that the concept of uh, product passports or product digital passports is coming more to uh, to the fore. You know that that is where that sort of information hopefully will become available. The challenge is that the science is constantly evolving here, and certain chemicals that were just sort of routinely put into products um, not that long ago, people are now realizing what their actual environmental impact is. If I could uh, wave a magic wand, something like a global product environmental liability 
you know, would perhaps solve all this problem where somebody can't put something onto the market unless they have tested its environmental impact at end of life through every type of pathway possible. For example, microbeads. I think if you thought about it, you might have wondered where those microbeads end up, um, you know, where they've been washed off uh, from their cosmetic use. Inevitably, they will have ended up in the marine environment. So why didn't somebody look and say, well, what happens to those microbeads when they're in the marine environment? And, you know, not only, not only do that because they want to be morally responsible, but actually have a legal duty to do it. So, you know, perhaps that's something that ought to be considered uh, for the future, because I, I suspect at the moment there are still things put out onto the marketplace that will have a demonstrable bad environmental impact at end of life without anybody factoring that in to the equation. And that's wrong, finally. Body glitter would be a really good example of that, Andy. I, I love a little bit of shine, but you're in the bath, it's going down the plug hole. You know where it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up in water treatment, which maybe it's going to be captured, maybe it's going to end up in water courses. Uh, just before we leave you, Sam, I'm really interested in your view on the kind of decarbonisation measures and requirements that national government, English national government is talking about. Have we seen any announcements in terms of um, prime ministerial announcements on decarbonisation that you think are going to steer you in one way or another? I don't think we've had any specific announcements that are going to steer us. I think, you know, there is obviously the impact of the announcement, the most recent announcement and the, the policy shift. You could call it a shift, I guess, the, uh, in re relation to seven bins. I don't think anyone really thought seven bins was a kind of reality, but we haven't seen that up. I don't think we're waiting for government policy to drive this. I think local authorities are grasping the nettle. We've seen some great examples of large scale decarbonisation practices going on. Westminster Council recently launched a, their all new electric fleet, which is powered off the energy recovery plant that they're, where their residents waste end up. So you know, that's a, a really good example of a, a fairly significant step forward for the centre of London. You know, that's the kind of examples we need to be seeing being rolled out across the, across the country. And then we've got some really fantastic examples like the, the reuse activity um, that's happening across the country up in Manchester the work that Suez and, and the council are doing up there in terms of their, their Renew Hub, um, which is diverting huge volumes of, of materials away from the residual, away from any waste stream, and they're actually being reused back in the community. So, you know, there are some fantastic examples. Councils up and down the land are getting on with this without the need for um, huge uh, intervention from, from, from government. And I think that's going to be the way we have to take it forward. Um, but learning from these great examples and then embedding them in other parts of the country. And Andy, from your perspective, what, what are the main issues, the pertinent issues, the hot topics that you're seeing on your horizon at the moment? Well, as well as uh, everything that Sam covered earlier um, in terms of extended producer responsibility, deposit return scheme, uh, noting that we're including glass uh, in Wales, also add that we want to do an awful lot more on uh, reduce, reuse and repair. And we have programmes underway to do that. And perhaps with glass, glass bottles, maybe that's a, an area where a deposit return scheme could drive refill uh, in the future. Going back to the good old days of the pot bottle uh, and soda bottle, I seem to remember uh, a long time ago when uh, I was a teenager, my 18, when I was 18, of course, that sort of thing used to go on routinely. But of course, the biggest hot topic for us at the moment apart perhaps from the new 20 mile an hour speed limit in most residential areas, is our new workplace recycling regulations that come into play next April. That will effectively mean the end of co-mingling or dry mixed recycling collections from all non-domestic premises in Wales. 
So that that's quite a shift. And that will really be to emulate what most householders in Wales do. 16 of our local authorities already have a curbside sort box-based system and several others have multi-stream collection. So the whole point of this is to improve the quality of the material captured and provide um, a resilient supply of high-quality recycled materials for our manufacturers. But crucially, it also enables workplaces to make a really important contribution to the climate and nature emergencies whilst also boosting that wider economic resilience that I just mentioned. That's wonderful. And that's the kind of joined-up governance that I think lifts um, Welsh government thinking well above um, anything else that we're, that we're seeing. So th- thank you for that. And, and just to wrap up, if you could give me one key takeaway on this subject that you'd like to leave our audience with. Oh, this, this is also not just the CIWM community, but the, the wider resource and waste sector, maybe policymakers, and maybe the next generation. What would the one key takeaway be? And I'll go to you first, Sal. I think the key thing is that we've got to work together. Um, what we've seen with some of the challenges we've had is where the individual drivers of the stakeholders involved has got in the way of delivering outcomes and driving forward on, on, on the right path. So for me, if we work together, this is doable but we do all really need to work together. That's the key to making uh, this work. Open, honest conversations, breaking down those barriers and finding the solutions that work for all. It will involve some compromise, but I'm almost certain that those compromises are going to be limited and short term. And actually what we'll see in the end is a positive benefit for all. That's brilliant. Thank you. And Andy, to you. Well, the waste sector in Wales has come an awful long way. Uh, When I started uh, in this job 23 years ago, we were landfilling 95% of our waste. Now it's less than 5%. You know, the sector has has transformed into a recycling sector rather than a waste sector, but it perhaps needs now in the future to grasp the opportunities of a circular economy and zero waste and think a lot more broadly around reuse, repair, helping businesses uh, reduce their waste, helping manufacturers generate less waste, to provide that sort of overall holistic service uh, that everybody desperately needs and move away from the sort of dirty waste image of the past to a much cleaner, resource efficient, tackling the climate and nature emergency role, which I think is a really exciting one for everyone and to grasp the opportunities for jobs and skills uh, and general excitement all round, really. It's wonderful. Thank you. And and I'd add into that, actually, I, I think I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. I think we've missed the trick in terms of communicating how we can all live better, happier lives with less and with better systems. There's no such thing as bad materials, but there are absolutely dreadful systems that they sit within. Look, thank you. I could talk to you two all day long. I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to waste. I always start when I'm doing a company visit, I always start in the skip. You can tell an awful lot about an organization by what they throw away. Thank you for joining me. Um, Those of you listening, I would love you to join us again for the next session, to go back and listen to previous sessions if you haven't listened before. And um, I really appreciate your attention. And to understand that we sit in a world of opportunity to position sustainability as a growth engine rather than a restriction. It's an accelerator, not a break. Whilst we use less resource, that's got to be magic. Thank you. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, Nuclear Waste Services, Sherborne Recycling and Machine X.
You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Leading the Way to a World Beyond Waste digital series by going to worldbeyondwaste.ciwm.co.uk. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on socials to check out more of our podcast collaborations. Mm-hmm.